Hello and welcome back to the Local Matters Podcast. I'm Charlie. I'm here today with Ethan. Hello. I'm Patrick. Hiya. Today we're talking about direct democracy and how it can apply to our lives today. So what we mean by direct democracy, you can see this in the Swiss model. Um, Switzerland is a country made up of cantons, just as we have constituencies or counties. And in these cantons, they elect a representative similar to how we do, but on a much smaller scale. There's one canton that even um, they still vote by show of hands. Uh, That's how small some of these cantons are. So realistically, your voice is a lot stronger in the smaller setting. And this makes up a federal council of several councillors from several parties. So you get a lot of diverse opinions, even at the top level, whereas we have just a constant battle of Conservatives versus Labour. Uh, and then the president, the federal president, the top guy, he rotates every year. So there's always, um, you know, it's ever-changing. This system obviously brings a lot of smaller parties out of the woodwork. For example, a few years ago, there was a PowerPoint party and they existed purely to reduce the use of Microsoft PowerPoint because they said that it's economically harmful. I didn't actually look into their policies, but um, yeah, obviously that's very, very niche. Uh, whereas party like that here would have no chance. And finally, they use a system of popular votes like the Brexit referendum we had, and they limit themselves to have up to four every year. Yeah, I mean, you get quite a few parties in the UK um, that are sort of niche. Or you get things like the Monster Raving Looney Party, but because of the first-past-the-post system we have, it's, it's really difficult for any sort of party to get a voice in beyond the Conservatives uh, and, and Labour. Um, and, I mean, the Lib Dems can try as hard as they might, and the Brexit party might have some sort of influence. But, you know, uh, the truth of it really is that we do live in a two-party system. Um, and there's so many problems to that, and it, it keeps real change out of the system. If you look at countries like, um, I think Denmark is a really good example of it, where they have quite a wide range of parties within their parliament, you get a much more uh, broad range of opinions and views and they're more representative of the the country's actual um, politics. I think it was last week's podcast, we we mentioned, I think it was um, 15% of the vote was was gained by minor parties in in the most recent election, but they, they didn't get really any seats at all um, because of the, the current political system we're in. Uh, so a shift to a Swiss model, uh, I think, is a, is a big step in the right direction, or at least something to consider beyond uh, our own parliamentary system. Yeah, I think it is quite an inspirational model, the Swiss model. I mean, as we will discuss, I'm sure, later on in this podcast, it's far from perfect, but it's a lot better than the other systems we've got in Europe. I think that's largely because it's based on regionalism and it has roots in centuries and even a millennium of history, the Swiss model. But I think from the experience they've had, we can see how regional government and regional people deciding regional issues and how to resolve them is really the best way forward for a stable and democratic nation. And Macron has even said that he wants this system for French voters as well. Uh, but he said it quite a few years ago. Obviously, there are advantages and disadvantages of the system. We'll go into them specifically now. Um, I mean, there's three types of referendum. There's mandatory, popular initiative, and optional. Um, and, you know, we don't have to go into the specifics of um, what vote requires, what percentage. Um, but, it's, you know, basically there is a system of um, more and less important 
referenda, um, which I think can help with the voter apathy. But if you're voting four times a year, um, every year, you might get bored of it. Do you think four's too many? I think it depends on the uh, the issue, and obviously there are other risks with with the referenda as well. I mean, you look at the the drama around the Brexit vote and the aftermath of that, and the fact that when you have even you know forty percent of the country, uh, let's say, still not being on side with such a major decision like that, it can make it um, more dramatised than if it was decided through representatives. How how do you mean, Patrick? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's just been so much controversy and so much back and forth after the vote um, that that it makes you think, you know, how much other referenda would have a similar effect. And obviously, Switzerland has been having these referenda for so long, and they don't have a similar problem. And Brexit's, uh, I think, it's an exception, not the rule. But there still is a risk of of voter apathy, and there still is. Um, Obviously, other risks tied to referenda that you need to take in mind. I don't think they're a perfect system by any means, but I think any system which incentivizes uh, actual participation and makes the the voice of people heard is much more important. I think, especially referenda on a local level, as opposed to trying to balance an issue upon the entire country, is is a much wiser idea. Yeah, I mean these um, these referendums are not. You know, they're not voting to leave or join the EU four times a year. They're a lot sort of smaller. They're still big issues because they're being voted on a national level. Um, but yeah, they're not the size or um, hostility of Brexit. I think I disagree, to be honest. I don't think it would create a large amount of voter apathy. Because, well, first of all, um, when you said, Patrick, that you can see the sort of drama that's occurred in the Brexit referendum, I think that's largely because of the scale of it. If you had a smaller vote where... It took place within a local community and everyone understood each other's point of views rather than opposing a sort of fake caricature like you know like racistly voters or really middle class bourgeois remain voters you'd be less likely to be to have such a hostile environment because everyone would you know if you like if you know your neighbors you understand where they're coming from but also i don't think it would you'd have as much voter apathy in the first place because if you understand the issues that you're voting on, which would largely be local matters, and if you can experience the change that comes out of your decision, as well as the fact that the government would actually act based on popular will, which you can see how much government stores on the national level in the rest of Europe, people would be more encouraged to vote because they can actually experience what power it has rather than you know throwing a piece of paper in a box once every four years and nothing practically changing in your life. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The fact that um, when we do vote, you know, whether it's Conservative, Labour, or uh, almost always Moisture, or vote otherwise, it's massive that we don't see a difference in what we vote for. Um, but you know, for people who voted in the Brexit referendum, if you voted Leave, you know, I'm sure you do feel like you did it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that feeling of accomplishment largely comes from, oh, I mean, it is a big issue, of course. But it comes is it comes from the novelty of actually having an effect on government, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Because if you had a lot of small referendums that sometimes you got your way, sometimes you didn't, but knowing your local community, you accept the result, then it wouldn't be such a novel phenomenon. You wouldn't be so taken aback by the fact that the government's actually listening to what you're saying. Yeah, and that's the way it should be, obviously, and that's the way it's designed to be on paper. 
it's just not the way it is. Yeah, I mean, it's the system's not aged with with society, at least not in a, in a good way. But I think when I speak to people now about their own political apathy, it it largely does stem from a belief that no matter who they they vote for or, or you know what they're voting for, be it controls on economy, immigration, they they don't see that direct difference. And I think referenda is a good way to. Um, actually get people more interested and excited about um, things happening in the communities and the, the country as a whole. And you can see that in Brexit. And that's one of the really big positive things that they did actually, you know, sort of galvanize people to actually care about what's happening in the country. And I know a lot of people who voted in the, the Brexit referendum were first time voters or haven't voted in a very long time. It definitely does come from the disconnect between the action you're taking by voting and nothing happening in government. It doesn't come from people being too lazy to go to a box for 10 minutes or, or you know, usually less. Um, it is just a disconnect, I think. That leads us really well into this quote that we've written down from um, Claude Julian. Do you want to read it out? You think? Sure. So this is from his book, The Suicide of Democracies. And he said, may we still speak of democracy when the majority of citizens can no longer distinguish between the arguments of the opposition and those of the politicians in power? Just like everything sort of around the, the topic of direct democracy, I, I find myself constantly coming back to the same thought where it seems almost as if we're in a bubble. And, and these things seem so obvious in that our parties are so similar and speak of so little practical change and do so little differently that um, it's almost comical. But nobody seems to really notice it. And I think a, a part of that is the sort of over-exaggeration of parties. But... I think our current political system leads to this sort of very, um, leads to this really sort of similar uh, middle ground sort of politics. And that's that's what First Past the Post creates, because you have to be as as catch-20 as you can with, with um, as much of the country as you can. So you don't get people really advocating for any sort of major change, because it would completely kill the voter base off. As opposed to having, as you do in other countries, those niche parties and those local parties being able to fight for specific issues um, that are really important to local people or they're really important but might not be uh, relevant to the whole country. Yeah, all we're left with now is um, what we used to refer to in school as catch-all parties. Conservatives and Labour both just cast their net as wide as they can and um, they just want to grab the biggest voter base. And I think that's mainly... To keep themselves in power, keep themselves in a job, uh, and not so much radical change or even any change. Um, the last time we saw that, I think, was probably Nigel Farage in UKIP before Brexit. But since then, he's sort of gone more towards the standard conservative style of campaigning. I think a major effect of that that we can see is the amount of revolts in the parties in this country. You know, the amount of backbench revolts and the amount of whips that are having to be used. And that just shows the high amount of factionalism in both parties, which you would expect because there's such a, broad, a broader range of opinions in society. But when you force these into two major parties, the parties basically end up tearing themselves into, two, into loads of different fragments. You can see this probably the most potently with Brexit. You know how the more liberal conservatives revolted and then you had the old labor types really it's almost as if there were five parties in parliament but of course you can't vote for that yeah imagine imagine being a group of mps in the conservative or labor party and you disagree with the and you disagree with the party whip um 
But if you left and made your own party to promote this issue, you'd be absolutely crushed and you'd have no chance at all just because they're too big. They've effectively monopolized um, the voting system. And that's what First Past the Post does. Well, I, think, I think that that actually happened, didn't it? It was around the time of the Brexit vote, there was a bunch of um, Conservatives and, and uh, Labour Party members who actually went off and, and founded a, a new party. Um, I think they ended up winning like less than than 2% of the vote or something absolutely stupid, not winning a single seat. It's, it's just because of the way that these parties monopolise uh, politics, because the system lends them to it. And every opportunity, they are trying to keep these systems in place um, really to the fault of, of the of, of other people because they're they're so determined to stay in power that they're actually um, stopping real democracy taking place. I mean, we already had a referendum on, on changing our first past the post system not too long ago. Um, and, and there was constant propaganda from the Conservatives and the Labour Party talking about, about its dangers, but of course they are Panic stricken at the thought that there might be anything other than a two party system because at that point they'd lose the monopoly they have, they'd lose the, the seats and the influence that they have to do actually very little. Absolutely. And this is completely in the face of the will of the people, I think, because you can easily see that there's a public appetite for multi party democracy. In 2015, the Green Party got 4% of the vote and UKIP got 13% of the vote. And this is despite, of course, them essentially not having any chance of getting into power. And ultimately, they only got one seat out of it. And there'll be a significant increase in votes for these smaller parties as well if there was a system that let them get somewhere. Because right now, people don't want to vote for UKIP or Green Party because their vote's barely going to count. But there's a lot of strategic voting as well, where people are voting for parties they don't necessarily want in power or don't necessarily want to represent them simply because they know their own party won't uh, have a shot. Um, and that still happens in a multiple party system, but it, it's far less likely when you're able to to have much more of an influence over who is actually representing you in your local area. I mean, you can have currently an MP, and I think there are a few examples around the country of this, that have, you know, as little as, as 20% of, of the actual vote, but because all the other parties are so split up in their vote, an MP who only actually has 20% uh, support can still get into power. Which is absolutely ridiculous. There was a glimmer of success for the smaller parties, I think, last year in 2019, with the Brexit Party, because essentially that was a party for Leave voters who would never vote, who'd never bring themselves to vote for the Conservatives. And you saw that they stole away a lot of the vote share of Labour and essentially won many constituencies for the Conservatives. Now, if you imagine this occurring, on a broader scale because of openings for smaller parties through a more representative and direct democratic system, it would really it would really place a lot of pressure on the big parties to start acting in the interest of the voters because of the threat of this smaller party. It's not just about the smaller parties getting elected because that is a lot of the time quite a difficult task, of course, but it's their role as pressure groups that we should encourage as well. So the question is really, would this work in the UK or in England? I don't think it would in the current model because it's much too centralised and it's based on a completely non-regional model. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. If there were four referendums a year, the current parties would just dominate the way that people vote and they would just vote along with the party that they prefer because there isn't 
Yeah, there isn't a diverse choice of parties. So that would be something that needs to change before direct democracy was able to work in the UK. Yeah, I think there's a lot of social uh, or cultural groundwork that needs to be built before you can have things like that. I think uh, the current system of of, um, English or British democracy is so ingrained uh, in in the way that our country functions, it's going to be incredibly difficult to to see any sort of major change. I mean, it's one thing changing, um, you know, to a first-past-the-post system, uh, from a first-past-the-post system. But changing to uh, a Swiss-style system is, is something that will require radical change and is, is not something that I think is easily achievable um, without some sort of major um, major event sort of causing people's uh, priorities to shift. Because I think at the minute, a lot of people don't really see the issues with, with democracy in the country. I think a lot of people uh, just sort of see things as they are and accept them as they are and see that as just sort of how things are always going to be rather than actually considering change. Yeah, they just sort of take on what they're born into. But I think I think I mentioned this um, in the last episode as well. If the smaller parties came together and all talked about a direct democracy and a more representative system, um, then I think we definitely could see change in you know, our lifetimes. I don't think it's that far away. Um, but yeah, parties crossing boundary lines would be necessary. You couldn't have the direct democracy party um, coming up and doing it. You can't rely on one party to do it because that's just completely against the system that they're trying to promote. Patrick, when you said it would take a major event to cause a big change like this, what sort of events do you, do you have in mind? Like, can you consider any? Yeah, so I didn't really have anything in mind, but if I had to think about it, um... It'd, it'd probably be something on a, on a similar scale to, to Brexit. You need some sort of major... Um, you need people to see a major flaw in our current political system. Uh, political system. You need that to be highlighted on, on the public level. Some sort of scandal or, or some sort of... Um, you need some sort of spectacle to bring attention to the issue because it's not something currently that's being talked about. Um, I, I don't know um, how or what that would be, but it, something needs to, to really change. I don't think it's something that's slowly going to happen um, in a very natural sense. I think it's going to be something that very quickly becomes a trend, much in the same way that um, even though there was a sentiment uh, for things like Brexit for a very long time, it, it really peaked uh, and, and sort of shot up in, in um, relevance around the time of the referendum and, and obviously just before as well. Um, so, I don't know specifically, but what I do know is that um, cross-party uh, cooperation, as you were saying, Charlie, is uh, almost never seen on any issue. And I don't understand why we're currently seeing parties like UKIP or the Greens, or even the Lib Dems, really, sitting around the table and talking and realizing how harmful first past the post is not only for our democracy but even in the most selfish sense for them as parties first past the post is absolutely ruining their ability uh, to perform um i i think we need to see uh, and they need to see more discussion on these topics so i think it's something that's inevitable eventually but i don't know what's gonna cause that spark and cause that uh necessary cross-party conversation to happen 
I suppose forecasting is the wrong way to go about it, really. I mean, who would have foreseen such a, moment, a momentous event as Brexit five years before it happened? Of course, you had people advocating for it, but nobody thought it was a feasible possibility until, well, I think for the majority of people, when David Cameron announced it. Yeah, I mean, Farage campaigned for it for over 20 years, but for the public, it almost came out of nowhere. Yeah, definitely. I think that's where the importance of small advocacy movements lies. You always need to have a group that's there, ready to seize the opportunity when it arises. You can't force an opportunity to come up, but you have to be ready to inform the public and get people behind you when it does arise. Yeah, I think it was the immigration crisis, wasn't it? Where there were so many migrants coming from Europe due to the uh, free movement laws. I think at that point, people were upset enough for um, UKIP to step in and take the votes and take the referendum to, um, you know, to the Conservative Party. True, but if it came out of nowhere that they suddenly were holding this referendum and there wasn't an organised pro-independence movement such as UKIP, I think the result would have been very different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. They waited until they had this opportunity uh, where people were upset enough to want change uh, and then they stepped in. Yeah. I think UKIP is a really good example of, of the way that um, pressure groups and, and specific issue parties can have a great impact, um, despite obviously any other issues you might have with UKIP as a party itself. Um, and I think a lot of parties need to start taking that note. And I think, in my own head, the best way uh, to, to see a shift to um, people talking about alternative forms of democracy is just simply conversation and debate. I think uh, accepting the status quo in, in the current political system is is the only thing that's really stopping this discussion from happening. Like people thinking outside the box and people having more um, more talks and more exchanging ideas uh, what's necessary for this change to come about. And that's obviously why, or part of the reason why we founded this group. I think there could be a potential solution in technological developments as well. These are always unforeseen before they occur, of course. It's quite an obvious point, but I think e-democracy could be a potential route to explore. There's a lot of concerns behind that with security and associated issues, but it could make voting a lot more accessible and reduce voter apathy, things like that, if it was implemented properly. But this is an example of potential solutions that come out of nowhere. What is that? I've never heard of it. How does that work? Well, it's not really a well, it's not really a term with a concrete definition. So it can mean a number of things. But in the term that I'm using it, I mean using technology to make voting easier. The classical example of this is electronic voting booths, although there's a lot of concerns behind the security of that. And it's just uh, it's a developing field that has suffered from not a lot of investment. But I think with more investment, it could be a potential solution to allowing people to vote on more local levels, local issues, things like that. Yeah, and I think not even just uh, physical voting. Uh, I think politics and, and what's happening in, in the country and in your local community as well is something that needs to be um, more readily available for people to consume, and especially through technology. Uh, I think news and media has constantly proven ineffective at doing that 
And I think we need to explore new ways that through technology and the internet, we can actually get information of, of what's happening, what people's concerns and, uh, and, and what, um, what the current happenings really are in people's communities in the country. And I think that's also a very, very powerful way uh, to influence change and to see what's going on. Absolutely. So obviously, all this conversation on democracy, um, when we do say democracy, we don't refer to the modern system. Um, so I would not call what we have today democratic. Democratic would be, uh, as the Greeks had it years ago, uh, many years ago, not just 1980, because they defined democracy as a contrast against two other systems, tyranny and aristocracy. Democracy in Greece was made up of three pillars, equality before the law, equal rights to access all public offices, and freedom of expression. Obviously, they're all values that we still hold today on paper. Whether enforced or not is a different question. It differs from government to government, country to country. It even depends what party is in power at the time. Um, but on paper, this is what real democracy is. Yes, well, I've read into um, Greek democracy quite a bit recently. And I've got a couple of notes here on um, you know, Greek popular assemblies. And it, it ties back a lot to... Um, sort of these local community votes um, and sort of parish councils and stuff that we've discussed already. I mean, everything from, um, you know, going to war or peace um, was, was voted on among the community. Um, so you had things like referenda on issued decrees, uh, the rights of citizens, public security. Every level of society was um, determined by, by the people in a majority, in a vote. Um, and obviously you can't do that now in a, in a modern setting. I'm, I'm sure we can talk about modern context later, but um, just the, the level of influence people had within their own communities in, in Greek society, I think is something that uh, we're missing today, that they got right so many, uh, many years ago. Yeah, obviously we can't do that with the population we have now, even on a constituency or town level. Um, you know, towns don't go to war or anything, but it just shows the polar opposite of of today, where a small city state um, would gather in the town hall and you would have effectively a referendum on whether you wanted to go to war or not with your neighbours. Um, that's not what we're advocating for at all, obviously. Um, but it's just crazy to think that people had that amount of influence on um, their entire country. Um, and especially, you know, because the population was smaller as well, one vote really did make a difference. Whereas today, uh, whether I vote Labour or Conservative, it's really not going to make much of a difference. <laughs> I think we still do have a certain degree of control over that. Um, with, you know, talking about initiatives like lowering the size of constituencies and uh, more uh, local autonomy on issues like that. Um, but in the current world, it can only be achieved to such an extent. Um, you know, how do you guys think that this could actually be translated into a modern context? Well, as I said earlier, I think it will be very hard to implement this kind of thing in the modern framework as essentially the Hellenic model, that the city-state model, was a brilliant combination of regionalism and direct democracy. Not consciously, of course, but it's essentially, well, I suppose it tells quite a lot that that's the origin of democracy in those conditions. It shows how important the idea of regionalism and of direct democracy are to the whole concept. So I think you would need 
first of all, a more regional approach to politics. And similar to what you're saying, Ethan, in Greece, these weren't, um, you know, this wasn't from Cornwall to Newcastle, where millions of people are deciding on a topic who have very different lives. This, these were close knit people living in the same communities. Um, so the disagreements and things wouldn't be that different and they would understand any different viewpoints that they had. Whereas we can't do that today, um, just simply because it's too big. Our system is too big. At least not on a national scale. Even in a regionalistic scale, if we had Yorkshire, for example, you'd still need um, sub-levels of that uh, for local referenda. You couldn't expect the whole of Yorkshire to vote on uh, certain town issues. So that's why it needs, um, as we said in the regionalism episode, you need those multiple layers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people misinterpret regionalist ideas as essentially throwing a plate on the floor, you know, shattering the country into loads of small pieces that can't function on their own. We said this on one of the episodes before about Scotland, I think. And in the Greek example, these independent city-states did come together in times of crisis, forming a Hellenic League. So that shows the importance of, in times of war, for example, or coordinated economic policy for international trade, the importance of coordination on a national level, but having local administrative units. Yeah, I mean, I think the best model is the United States, just due to communication uh, improvements. And, you know, it's a lot easier to talk to someone from Scotland now and for them to travel to London for a parliamentary vote than it was for you know Athens and Sparta to communicate with each other. So um, I think that the federal um, US model would be the best one uh, to compare it to, but with, you know, direct democracy and um, a regionalistic outlook. But um, yeah, it's de- the framework is definitely there in history and in modern day. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work that would need to be done to make the US system better. It was good, I think, in its initial planning phase, but I suppose the main thing you can get out of the current system of America is that it is possible to some extent on a large, basically continental scale, if it is broken up enough. Of course, there are countless problems with the way they elect presidents and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely, you know, it'd have to be in an English context. There would have to be translations made. But I I think it's the most similar model to my ideal um, system. At least in in the breakup of of regions and and sub-regions, not necessarily in the actual application of their their politics. I I agree with you. The idea of, of, you know, um, there being a a Yorkshire uh, parliament and then having, you know, local councils within that and, and, you know, town councils within that um, to, to allow people at every level to have as much influence as possible. I do think that if you scratch beneath the surface of the American system, many more problems emerge than good aspects of that model, such as the Electoral College is a very aristocratic way of governing the country. They can completely ignore the will of the people in effect if they so desire. But I think the the federal model working on such a massive scale is an interesting aspect of it that should be looked at. Yeah, I think the balance of uh, state and federal laws is, as far as I know, it's pretty, um, pretty spot on. Yeah, definitely. There's positive aspects that can be taken from all over. And I think across Europe, there needs to be some sort of sit-down conversation where we all 
discuss the actual flaws in our current systems and democracy and try to reach something which is much more uh, conducive to an actual um, political system in the 21st century. Because um, we're running on a lot of old systems and a lot of uh, old traditions that aren't working. And we touched on that in the previous episodes, talking about the sizes of constituencies and things um, not not really working with our current population. But there are certainly benefits and drawbacks to the American system, the Swiss system, uh, the Scandinavian system. Everyone's doing certain things right and certain things wrong. And I think the, the sort of thing we can take away from that is that regardless of what outcome we have, we need to start a discussion about what the best way to handle our democracy is because currently uh, I don't think it's it's working and it's not serving the people. Yeah, and I think the biggest, blo- actually definitely the biggest block of this um, of direct democracy or regionalism movement is uh, the Conservative and Labour Party. They will not want to sacrifice their power because remember these are people with um, you know jobs and they just want to be re-elected so they can keep being paid. Um, and they're not going to let a direct democracy system get in. Um, so to combat that, these smaller parties really need to cross party lines um, and work together despite ideological differences on immigration or environmentalism. And they need to talk together about direct democracy. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's a really good point to end on, actually. Patrick, do you have anything else to say? No, I think that's all uh, for this week. Okay then, well that's all for this episode. Make sure to check out our social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter at localmatterseng and visit our website thelocalist.org. If you're feeling particularly generous, consider donating to